Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Ever since the creation of Israel and its displacement of Palestinians, Jews and Jewish heritage haven't been much embraced in the Arab world. But our correspondent finds how much and how fast that seems to be changing. And Russian tanks are perched on Ukraine's border, for the moment on hard, frozen ground. When that thaws, things will get messier and trickier. We look into the tactical concern posed by rivers of mud. But first... If you're holding stocks in big tech firms, 2022 has already been a real nail-biter. For so long, they seemed to be headed in only one direction, up. During the pandemic, central banks were slashing rates and unleashing tons of stimulus money, and markets as a whole just kept hitting high after high. Now to the economy back here at home and another record week on Wall Street. The Dow Jones closing today at another record high at 34,000. But as we laid out last week, as all that easy money is pinched off, the markets have been having a big hiccup. I think the market over broadly is so overbought that it's hard to know where the center of gravity should be. Right? So that's particularly those once darling big tech stocks and the indices where they're listed. So far this year, the Nasdaq Composite Index is down by about 10%. And that's equivalent to the wiping out of something like $2.5 trillion of market capitalization. Jan Petrovsky is The Economist's business editor. And some of the big names which have taken a knock include Netflix, which has lost around 40% so far this year. Just last week, we saw Meta. Um, which is the parent company of Facebook, lose over $200 billion literally overnight after it reported disappointing earnings. After a dismal outlook from Facebook owner Meta Platforms not only took down its own shares, but also rattled the entire stock market, abruptly ending a short... So it seems like a pretty generalized tech carnage. And what is it that's going on here? So some of that market turmoil is down to general factors, such as uh, tightening monetary policy around the world and really rich valuations, especially of tech stocks. But some of it is uh, is really very specific to the tech sector itself. What are those factors, though? What's specifically techy about this? The tech industry is entering a sort of a new regime, if you will. And this new era is characterized by two things. The first is that some specific tech markets are becoming much more contested. So, for instance, there are lots of companies spending an awful lot of money trying to build subscriber bases for their streaming video. More and more companies are offering cloud computing services. 
There's lots of competition in social media. As a result of that, investors are actually becoming much more discerning. So they're not bundling all of tech into one big basket. They're looking specifically at specific companies with specific products. After the dot-com crash of the early 2000s, you know, investors suddenly realized that some companies were mere web addresses, whereas others were actually business models. Then in the past few years, uh, you saw investors distinguish between the large profitable tech platforms on the one hand and unicorns, which were valued very richly by the private markets, um, with much less sustainable business models. So we're thinking of companies like Uber or Lyft, which went public, but um, had rather disappointing performance since. Um, And now, apparently, the time has come for the biggest companies to be disaggregated. And perhaps, you know, we're seeing the end of the era of the acronyms, you know, the FANGs, or the or GAFA or GAFAM, or most recently MAMA, I think. By which you mean? Uh, by which I mean Microsoft, uh, Alphabet, Meta, uh, Apple, and Amazon. So how to think about this, this big sort, this, this disaggregation? So there are two things that um, it is worth keeping an eye on. The first is which companies maintain or have pricing power, And the second is what, if any, plan B um, a given company has if its core product falls out of favor. So what do you mean by pricing power and and who's got it? So for pricing power, it's basically the ability of companies to charge consumers higher prices for their products to pass on costs to to consumers uh, in order to maintain high margins. And companies that have them... Uh, at the moment, include Apple, you know, which can charge $1,000 for a new iPhone, and, you know, you have people queuing up to get those new devices. Um, And uh, as it turns out, uh, at least in investors' eyes, Amazon, which, you know, one of the reasons for the overnight um, surge in Amazon's market capitalization, also on the order of of $200 billion, um, after it announced its results, was its announcement that it will be raising the price of its prime subscription uh, by $20 to $139 a year. And so who, who is it that, that doesn't have that pricing power then? So Netflix may be running out of room to raise prices further. Its subscriber growth has slowed and it has warned that it's, it, you know, it won't see as many new subscribers as the market had expected. And acquisition just uh, you know, growing, but a bit slower than, than uh, pre-COVID levels, just hasn't fully recovered. And you know, we're trying to pinpoint what that is. It's, it's tough to... And that suggests exactly that it's not going to be able to raise prices very easily. And in fact, in places like India, which is a big market it, it is trying to expand in, it has slashed its prices already. And as for uh, Meta, uh, its boss, Mark Zuckerberg, has warned that the social networks uh, that um, are part of Meta, so Facebook, Instagram, and, and to an extent WhatsApp, are, are facing growing competition from the likes of TikTok. People have a lot of choices for how they want to spend their time. And apps like TikTok are growing very quickly. And this is why our focus on real Which is a massively popular with, with especially with younger users and other companies like Snap, which is a, an American social network, also popular with youths, also appears to be gaining market share. And then the other factor to watch you said was a plan B. I mean, these are companies that got where they are by innovating, right? They inherently surely have plans B. 
So some of them certainly do um, uh, or are trying to have them. Companies such as Apple, which has made its fortune selling um, very snazzy devices, is now expanding into services to lock consumers ever more deeply into its ecosystem. And, you know, companies like Amazon, uh, you know, derive most of their profits these days not from e-commerce, but from cloud computing. For Microsoft, cloud computing is also becoming a a very large part of its business. So, yes, many of them do have a a plan B. And in fact, Meta, part of the reason it changed its name from Facebook, was to emphasize that it's turning away from social media and towards uh, an emphasis on virtual reality metaverses. The trouble is that that business model is untested. As for Netflix... It is tentatively trying to expand into video gaming, but it really is still mostly a one-trick pony. And that trick, unfortunately, is getting ever harder to pull off with a lot more competition coming from people like Disney, like uh, Warner uh, and others, which have launched streaming services. So given what we've seen in the markets so far this year uh, and and with those uh, plan B and pricing powers as the watchwords, what to expect? Well, one thing is I suspect that you will have investors really scrutinizing the the particular business models of particular companies rather than bundling them into a single whole. It's probably going to be great for consumers as these companies try to attract as many users and spend an awful lot of money on trying to retain or, or lure new customers. And the new period also promises to be much more nerve wracking in tech and and in other parts of the stock market. As my colleague Alice Fullwood has been investigating by looking at whether or not the current market turmoil is more or less troubling than in the run-up to the financial crisis of 2008. Jan, thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure. Tomorrow, Alice will be on Money Talks, our sister show about business and finance. She's been speaking with some increasingly wary investors and the Nobel Prize-winning economist Robert Schiller, Look for Money Talks wherever the frothiest podcasts are listed. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. For centuries, Jews flourished in the Muslim world. That changed after Israel was founded. Palestine, with ugly scenes in Jerusalem following the United Nations announcement on partition. But now, thanks in part to support from the unlikeliest of countries, things seem to be changing. What's been really astonishing is just to see how Jewish life is now kind of bouncing back with a vengeance. It's kind of bubbling up in so many places that it had really been erased from or just sort of so repressed that you never saw any sign of it. Nicholas Pelham is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist. This is perhaps most astonishing in Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia, where I met with an ultra-Orthodox Jew who could have come straight out of Brooklyn or Stamford Hill in London, sitting in a cafe in the middle of Riyadh. It's also about the law of attraction. The law of attraction when you know you want to do something. He was a big personality with big ideas. And we were talking about 
his vision for what he saw as the kind of ongoing transformation of Saudi Arabia, perhaps the most puritanical, xenophobic part of the Middle East. How big would it be? Oh, it would be big, big. Well, listen, one, Saudi Arabia, you got to do it big, beautiful. So here was this kind of rabbi sitting in a cafe in ultra-Orthodox garb and presenting this kind of almost Trumpian vision of how Judaism was going to bounce back into Saudi Arabia from a kingdom which had been ruled by clerics from which there was no other place for any other religion except for for Islam. And here he was declaring that he was going to have a menorah, a candle bra for Hanukkah. We'll give uh, whoever is interested, any Jewish people who want a menorah or candles, we'll give them a kit. I think his vision actually was that he wanted to light the candles in in, in Chop Chop Square, where kind of hitherto the clerics had executed and amputated limbs for violations of Islamic law. And is Rabbi Jacob an an outlier in Saudi Arabia? There's definitely been an attitudinal shift. I mean, in the past, if if an ultra-Orthodox rabbi had even been able to enter the kingdom, he would have been sort of utterly ostracized and sort of probably detained by the religious police. And he couldn't be sitting in a cafe. So the fact that he's just sort of left to get on and preach in public is just simply astonishing. And it's not just happening with this kind of slightly maverick rabbi. If you go to the northwest, which is really the kind of focal point of the kingdom's development at the moment, you come across these kind of large-scale tourism projects which are getting underway. One site that I went to, it was north of Medina. It's a beautiful oasis. It's called Haiba, and it's a sort of name that just resonates for both Jews and Muslims in the past. It was it was a symbol of conflict. It's supposedly the place where the Prophet Muhammad defeated his Jewish opponents and enslaved and expelled them. And it was kind of synonymous with conflict from the outset of Islam. But in fact, now it's being given a, a twist by the new order. It's being developed as a touristic site. You've got archaeological digs and they're looking for evidence of a Jewish past and certainly looking at the prospect of having Jewish tourists come and visit. Okay, talk me through what that tension used to look like in practice. For over a millennium, Jews and Muslims were inhabiting the same space. And then along came religious nationalism on both sides. You had a rise of kind of Muslim chauvinism and you had a rise of Zionism. And there was this battle of over land between Jews and Muslims, which began with the creation of the State of Israel in 1948. And for 75 years, pretty much, they've been uh, still waging this war. Palestinians were displaced from Palestine, what became Israel. Jews were displaced uh, pretty much en masse from the Arab world to the point where there may have been something like 900,000 Jews living in Muslim countries at the time of the creation of, of, of Israel. And within a few decades, that had been whittled down to barely 10,000. So, you know, you've really seen this kind of erasure of Jewish identity from across the, the Muslim world. And now, all of a sudden, it's starting to bounce back. And this is what's so astonishing, that in some sense, the region is beginning to recover its lost pluralistic past. So what is it that's changed then? The Arab-Israeli conflict has been raging for 75 years. And there's a kind of degree of fatigue, a degree of exhaustion, a sense that Israel isn't necessarily the root of all evils, because there's just so much else that's going on in the Arab world that is related to strife. Um, and there's also a sense that Israel has remarkably sort of withstood a lot of the strife in the Middle East and it's actually gone from strength to strength as an economy and as a military power and as a kind of bullock that some see against increased Iranian influence in the Middle East. And so kind of people are rethinking old religious tropes as well as old political ones. And there's also a kind of growing memory of what the Middle East 
used to be like. And this idea has taken such a hold that there are you know, even some governments that are offering incentives for Jews to relocate and live in their midst. But as you say, these were conflicts that were millennia in, in the making and, and old habits die hard. Is, is everyone on board with these new attitudes? I mean, this is synonymous with normalization and it's normalization without really Israel paying much of a price in terms of it ending its conflict. It used to be that there was going to be land for peace and now there's really no change in Israel's occupation of the West Bank and of Gaza. And there's a sense amongst many in the region and particularly amongst Palestinians that they've been bypassed and that you know, the occupation and uh, by Israel has been forgotten. And, you know, you can even find that in satirical songs that are being aired in Israel. There's one called Dubai, Dubai, which highlights the irony of uh, Jews roaming around the Arab world while Palestinians are still hemmed in behind walls and checkpoints. So there are reasons to believe that there will be some, some hiccups on the way to the kind of regional integration you're seeing hints of. Yes, I mean, the kind of the question is, is this just a kind of flash in the pan? Is this a brief hiatus in an ongoing conflict or has something fundamentally changed? And I think what makes Morocco so interesting is actually that it's been decades ahead of the rest of the Middle East and North Africa in that it's been rehabilitating uh, Jewish life in, in the kingdom for almost a, a generation. The country has a Jewish museum, there's a new Jewish study centre, there are uh, dozens of old Jewish sites that are being restored. And there are also festivals where rabbis and imams come together and sing in, in public. So there is reason, I think, to believe that once other countries start walking along this road, they are going to continue. It is gathering pace. Nicholas, thank you very much for your time. Jason, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. The world is still holding its breath as Russian forces linger on Ukraine's border, seemingly poised for an invasion. As we keep saying, no one can know the mind of President Vladimir Putin, but we can guess that he's got some timing constraints set by Russian military exercises with Belarus starting in a couple of days. And China's president, Xi Jinping, has reportedly asked him to hold off during the Winter Olympics. But there are also dangers in waiting too long. Mud has been a huge headache for military commanders for centuries. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defense editor. Muddy conditions famously hindered Napoleon's invasion of Russia in 1812. The First World War was defined by soldiers encased in miserable, muddy trenches, sinking right into it. Horses, belly deep, take slow steps against the wet fury of the Russian springtime. Mud, mud in Russia, and still more weather, not Hitler weather. Mud also played havoc with Nazi Germany's offensive towards Moscow in 1941. Half-tracks and tanks, which Hitler thought could go anywhere, make little progress in Russian mud. Infantry bogged down too, for even in this mud, Russian shells give no rest. The roads rapidly became nothing more than canals of bottomless mud. 
Even during the Cold War, when NATO held these massive exercises in Germany called Reforger every year, tanks would often get stuck. Mud would build up in the sprockets, which are the wheels that turn the treads, and often the treads would be thrown off. In Eastern Europe, the weather, the terrain and warfare have been so tightly interwoven that the concept even has a dedicated Russian word, Rasputitsa. It refers to literally the time without roads. It's the heavy rain in the autumn, the melting snow and ice in the spring, both of which turn roads into these incredibly difficult to traverse bogs. I love that there is a specific word for this, but on the notion of weather, it was clearly a problem in the past, but is it, is it really still a problem for modern militaries? Weather makes a difference to modern militaries in all sorts of ways. So clouds can impede airstrikes. The amount of foliage you have on the ground can make a difference to what you can see from the air. And cold weather is also very important. Winter is very difficult on soldiers, but it can be good for tanks, strangely enough. Armoured forces, they are best suited to really hard frozen ground that allows much more rapid offensives. And conversely, once it gets to spring and once that ice begins to thaw, once you get the mud... That does make life difficult for armoured vehicles. But given this sort of intertwined nature, the existence of this very word about time without roads, has Russia tried to adapt its vehicles to deal with the mud? It absolutely has. It has huge experience of dealing with warfare in these muddy, cold, boggy conditions. It has engineering units that can pull tanks out of their stuck positions in the mud. And more importantly, perhaps, Russian armour is, generally speaking, designed to be a little bit lighter, faster, simpler than its Western equivalent. So if you take a Russian T-90 tank, for instance, one of the mainstays of the Russian tank fleet, I think it weighs around 46 tonnes or so. A German Leopard tank can weigh over 60 tonnes. That's a big difference in terms of the ground pressure it exerts and the likelihood of getting stuck. And Russian forces are also designed with an emphasis on being amphibious. So in other words, you can put them on land or water and air droppable capabilities. You can literally drop them out of planes with paratroopers. The problem is those sort of lighter forces don't have the same punching power as heavy armour. But it does mean that Russia can move over this kind of boggy, muddy terrain with greater ease than an equivalent Western NATO force would be able to if it were on the same ground. So what's the upshot? How much of a threat is the Rasputitsa then to a potential Russian invasion? Well, a lot of people are saying the mud is going to shape Russia's invasion. They won't be able to invade once you get to March or April. That isn't true. You know, paved roads were very rare in the 1940s when Nazi forces were getting bogged down in Ukraine. Now you have lots of paved roads and that makes it much easier. It's not a panacea. You know, tank commanders don't like to have to follow predictable routes on roads. And that's a problem. You can get ambushed. You can get struck by artillery or missiles if you're on a sort of known roadway through a certain area. But Ukrainian forces would have the same issue. So overall, I'd say the impact of mud has probably been a little overstated. And if Vladimir Putin orders an offensive, general mud, as European armies historically called this problem, is just not going to be a hard constraint for the Russian armed forces. If they want to invade Ukraine in March or April, they'll be able to find a way to do that. Thanks very much for joining us, Shashank. Thank you, Jason. It's good to be on. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow.
Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.